The business of culture, the culture of business, markets and policy, media and technology, entrepreneurs, creatives. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. There were clients who were vested in Spark surviving, and they said, look, I'm going to pay you this thing I don't owe you yet, and it's going to be a large sum of money, and I will get in trouble if my company even knows about that. Don't ask about money for the next eight to 10 months. That's what they were saying. And I was saying to myself, eight to 10 months? I thought this thing was going to last two weeks. Remember when it was supposed to last two weeks? My younger brother is a hospitality industry entrepreneur. We're always sharing notes on calculated risk-taking, the innovator's dilemma, how, for example, he had the guts to leave his corporate job for startup life just as he was having his first child and buying his first house. Always taking notes, I thought it was finally time to have him on my podcast. So here goes. Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com. Again, FullDRadio.com. Follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can message me to carry full disclosure on your air. Joining me from Miami, Florida, uh, my hometown where we grew up together, we're trying something new here, is my brother, my little brother, Ronnie Farzad. He's principal at Spark cooperative. It's a strategic design consulting and management partner delivering experience-centric solutions. Uh, Long and short is my kid brother has built the business over the last eight years and has dealt with all manner of uh, cruise ship companies, hotels, hospitality experience companies, and he is a wonderful sounding board for me. So I wanted to try something new and bring him to my listeners. How are you, baby bro? Thank you. I'm doing well. How's it going? Well, look, I always, you know, I I had to drag you into this. Let's be honest. You didn't raise your hand to do it, but I wanted to bring this back to something that I have been endlessly fascinated by. We talk in this show about work-life balance and risk-reward. Oftentimes, you could go back and listen to any of my guests, big and small, luminaries, entrepreneurs, people bootstrapping it. I'm amazed still that you in 2014, at the age of, what was it, 32, you left your job as an executive at Royal Caribbean, you bought a house, you had your first child, and you started a brand new company, kind of bootstrapping it. And you you always say to me that, well, this was just in my nature, but looking back, I, I don't understand how you did that or where that kind of that risk profile, that risk appetite came from. Yeah, I, I I don't understand it either, and I think that maybe I wouldn't have done it today. Um, fast forward eight years, and you know where the circumstance is the same, but right. it felt it felt like it was inevitable. You know, I like I guess I say that to you sometimes, right? It felt like it was inevitable, and it felt like it was going to happen, and it had to happen. And sometimes I guess you, you feel the energy, and you can't deny it. So, um, I re- you know I remember us talking about it, and you saying to me, "Do you, do you really know what you're doing?" and I don't remember my answer to that question. 
<laughs> well, there was that song in my head. I don't know who sings it, but it goes, do you know where you're going to? And it was ringing in my head when the pandemic struck. And here you are with a fledgling uh, firm that deals overwhelmingly with the cruise ship industry. And this is something that if you go back two years ago, we know that cruises and hospitality, hotels, the world over, it all shut down overnight. It was a true kind of once in a generation financial crisis. That's right. Yeah. Um, you know, we didn't, no one knew we were headed towards that, right? I think everyone has this flashbulb moment of, you know, where were you when you found out COVID was going to hit? And I, I recall, right. you know, there was, there were, there were like four or five phases to it, right? And the, the first phase was, oh, this thing, this is just another, another flu, right? And everyone was saying that, oh, it's just another, a thing, a small thing, nothing. And then it just became more and more real to where you were starting to see the actions. Um, out there and some of the the proactive things that clients and non-clients and prospective clients were doing and peers in the industry. And you say, oh, wow, this is kind of real. And even if it's real only at psychological level, but, you know, that was the going into it phase. And then there was the the, the deep silence of just being in it, right? And you and I, I think we talk about that a lot, but being in it and then what it really felt like to, to come out of it somewhat, because I think we're not truly out of it, but here on the other side of it to some degree or, or seeing, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, I think it's been interesting, right? That's been its own case study, I think, you know, if there were case studies. I ask this of uh, entrepreneurs all the time, that you and your partners turn to each other uh, when you realize, I don't know, whatever it was, the CDC or the WHO declaring this officially. For me, it was official when I realized college colleges across the country were calling off the rest of the term. And the NBA kind of punted on the season until it could open up a bubble. And then you kind of amorphously felt like something was coming across the ocean. And you heard about ERs in Manhattan filling up and just awful, awful headlines kind of in the fog of we didn't know. We were slathering each other up with uh, Purell and hoarding Purell. Right. <laughs> right. We were, we were washing the bags. Well, Lysoling yeah. the bags as I was contacting you for best practices. But in that haze, did you turn to your partner and say, what's our kind of business interruption insurance situation? I mean, they don't they don't teach you anything about this in business school. There was no... So first off, there was no pandemic insurance. There was no business Did you know insurance. that off the bat that whatever insurance you had for your firm, your startup, do you even have insurance? Oh, of course. Yeah, you have to have... There are insurance requirements, general liability, professional liability. Then you have some more specific types of insurance, cybersecurity insurance. There are all sorts of so um, you didn't you knew that this policies. was carved out. You knew you didn't have to call around or read the fine print that night. You know what it was? It was this moment. I think I I remember a a case study on crisis management, right? And that we did um back in business school. And everyone talks about, you know, the Tylenol case study in crisis management. That's the really famous one. Right. And there was this moment where it was all about responding but not just responding as a uh, in a reactive way, but how do you just assume the worst is coming and how do you do more than you would need to do? I, I, or at least that's the lesson I took from that, right? Being really proactive and being on the side of the consumer. And I think for us, it was this moment of when you're going into it, you only the people who assumed the worst were going, if, if, if they were extremely affected by it, were going to benefit or not even benefit, but not be in the worst circumstances. And it was almost like this ticking clock. It's like a hurricane preparedness thing, right? When right. You could, t you could tell I'm a Floridian, right? Um, when the hurricane's coming at you, the longer you're indecisive. By the time you know, the, by the time it's on your on your shores, you don't have many places to evacuate to. At least you're in Florida, right? So same way with COVID, 
by the time everyone was making their decisions about who they were and were not going to pay and you know maybe ships they were pulling out of service and there were contracts they were going to call a force majeure on or something of that sort you were already going to be in a losing circumstances so it actually it fell to me in the business i guess i ended up being the bad cop but i remember getting the partners together in early february or even late january of um of 20 and just saying you know, let's just assume that we're not receiving any other revenue for the rest of the year. Wait, but that, just, that was it wasn't even official until mid-March. But you had you had leading indicators coming from the cruise industry. Like what were we you just, reading? Yeah. What were your what were your barometers that we didn't have? I was I was with a client um in in late January, early February of uh twenty with a cruise client, and they we were having very in-depth discussions and they were going into the other room and then they were coming back, like select people who were in the meeting with me were going to the other room and then they were coming back and I was like, everything okay? Yeah, there's just, you know, there's a flu going on um, on one of our ships, right? And that's what, you know, that's what they knew. That's what everyone kind of knew. And I don't have the date exact, but I just remember, why do people leave a room for a flu? Um, you know, worse things happen, you know, especially on cruise ships, right? And then you just heard whispers, right? It was always, it was a weird time. It was a weird time where you just didn't know what you knew. And I just remember our anniversary, my wife and I is on, on February 11th. And I just remember us being out at dinner, we always go to Fifi's on the beach. And I remember us being out at dinner and it should be a joyous occasion, but I just remember it felt like, you know, a, a slow-mo car crash um, with my business and just feeling it as it was happening. Hmm. Um, so yeah, that was a dark time, but we're in better times now. <laughs> what can I say? Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are talking to my little brother, my younger brother, Ronnie, who is a founder and a principal at Spark Cooperative. It's a hospitality client experience firm. You you summarize it for me. I've always tried to do this. You you give me the five-second yeah. drill. I mean, the five-second drill is, you know, I worked at a cruise line for a long time uh, with a partner who's also one of my best friends, so co-founder, technically. And... Um, there's just a there's an empathy that you have on behalf of the customer when you work in a cruise line and anywhere where you have a captive audience and you start um, designing experiences and providing services that are based around the customer and customer centric and so we've taken that approach um, and we've brought it to all different types of customers of course the cruise industry but also resorts and I think education as well and technology companies. So media prior, companies, prior to uh, this, you entertainment were, districts. So prior know, so. to this, you were at Royal Caribbean, the, the multinational cruise line based here in Miami yes. for seven years where you were dealing with strategic alliances, promotions and, and entertainment technology. And I guess the, the startup bug thing hit you, which again was amazing to me. If I could just go back to that period in 2014, we're coming out of the great financial crisis. There are still some tendrils, some tentacles left from that experience. I mean, many of your colleagues were PTSD'd enough from that experience to want to cling to a gigantic firm with benefits and back office and, and whatnot. But others realized that you're kind of a free agent regardless, that if you have nothing to lose, you might as well take a chance on yourself. Yeah, I think there's a certain, I've said this to you before, I think there's a certain arrogance and naivete that are, are why people go into entrepreneurship and they romanticize it, right? They think about all the positives and they don't fully understand the challenges or the, the way you need to operate differently. And I think the reasons why people go into entrepreneurship are maybe different than why um, people build successful companies. I know that kind of how I looked at it and why I went into it and how I believed it would go is totally different than how it's ended up. That's not to say good or bad. It's just um, your reason for leaving corporate 
is usually different than your, you know, your year three outlook when you're in your own company, is what I would say. Now, when you did leave and took this leap of faith, and clearly the older brother, you know, you can kind of at that point say, okay, boomer, I'm not a boomer, I'm a Gen Xer. And I think you're a very you're a very old millennial or young Gen Xer. I, I kind of I still envy you, and I I question you whenever we see each other for for doing this. I mean, how did you did you start saving cash? You you took many you pulled many band aids off when you decided to do this. Again, you had your first child. You bought your first. So the house. first thing, the first thing is my wife, right? You know, she's incredible, and she urged me. Um, you know, she knew I was talking about going out on my own and leaving Royal. And um, she, my wife, Jackie, urged me to kind of be serious about it and go look at it. And she's kind of the anti-entrepreneur. She's never has wanted to be an entrepreneur, not interested in it, loves the company she works at. And um, she encouraged me. You know, I actually thought it was a little premature, maybe not the right idea. Um, I toyed with the idea of entrepreneurship. Um, and then actually my partner had approached me and said, let's, you know, let's talk, right? So he had actually, he had left Royal Caribbean and he approached me. And I think one of my kind of pre-qualifications for even thinking about it was that there would have to be some sort of runway. There'd have to be kind of like one, one client um, or some sort of income runway that would allow us to figure stuff out, right? Um, at least in the first year. And there was. There was a nice size client. Um, I think that going into it with just one client and a, a nice size client was was good. I also think it made us a little bit lazy um, early on. And I think that um, it didn't force it didn't didn't allow us or kind of well, delayed answer, us. Answer me this. Why didn't you raise capital? Explain that for our lay listeners. I mean, it's not a venture capital or a startup industry. Wouldn't you want to raise as much as possible to make success as inevitable as possible? That's a really great question. Why did we not raise capital? I'd say that we're really risk. So that's interesting that you're you're saying that I took the risk, and and I always talk to you about the fact that I think there there are different types of entrepreneurs, right? Um, what ca- what kinds think, are there? Tell me. Yeah, yeah. I think that there are the entrepreneurs who have an idea and they just believe it in their veins and. They can't do anything without scratching that itch all day and night. It's a brilliant idea. They think it's a billion dollar idea, and that's what they're trying to do, right? You know, my hat goes off to those people. I'm not one of those people, but they are just obsessed, obsessed with the idea day and night. They're either creating the technology or, you know, have an idea for a business they're going to create and going out and kind of getting, you know, the angel, angel investors and then going after the seed funding and all of that stuff. And I'm just not that person, right? And th- those people are great. They're obsessed with a, a singular idea. They have a vision and they're going to build it as large as, you know, as large as they can, right? Um, and if I see them as one, at one end of the spectrum, I'd say at the other end of the spectrum or what I'd call like the lifestyle. And by the way, these aren't my original thoughts. I heard this on a podcast called Startup. <laughs> um, sorry for that. It's not a, that's not an advertisement, but you know, on the other side, on the other end of the spectrum, you have these entrepreneurs who are kind of like the lifestyle, like you know, the lawyer who is only going to ever really want two or three clients and might bring one associate under her, right? And that's it, right? I'm done. Or the consultant who's only going to have two two retainers, and that's it. And you know, that's that's the choice too. That's a lifestyle business, right? And it allows you to have a lifestyle, and you're not thinking about scaling all day and night, and you're not thinking about investors, right? I'd put us somewhere kind of squarely in the middle where we are, you know, we are trying to grow. We have grown. We've created different, you know, products and we're serious about it. 
Um, and there's more than myself and my partner, but we're not sitting here trying to become a billion dollar company. And I have no interest in doing that, right? That was kind of a conscious decision from the get-go. Just never had that appetite. It's not my interest. Now, what were the peculiar things that happened when the fears of the pandemic turned into a full-blown pandemic? Were you suddenly, I mean, this is where, you know, we don't want to get into jargon, but credit worthy. No, it's okay. Counterparty risk and everything. Were people suddenly not paying bills or extending bills? Or I would imagine trying to lean on vendors and trying Mm. to lean on payables and receivables both ways to kind of build yourself some kind of goodwill runway so you could live for another 30 days. Like I I know how important credit and um, IOU and, and whites of the eye contact is, but everybody was calling everybody. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. It's kind of that feeling again of like, if you, if you, know the hurricane is coming, what are the things that you would do now that you can't do in 45 days, right? And I did that. And I'm fortunate I had really good clients who, you know, after some initial hesitation or, you know, as news was filtering through their companies, um, really pulled some favors, if I'm being honest with you, and and even fronted us money, um, which is incredible to have that relationship, right? Yeah. And, and actually, that reminded me of the restaurant entrepreneurs we had on who were amazed at how many people just came to their restaurants and bought gift card balances sight unseen, not with any expectation of using them, but kind of with fronting them that money for their balance sheet so they could make payroll. So they were vested in seeing them survive. And I think that's- Exactly. You're exactly right. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but there were clients who were vested in Spark surviving and they said, look, I'm going to pay you this thing I don't owe you yet. And it's going to be a large sum of money. And I will get in trouble if my company even knows about that. Don't ask about money for the next eight eight to 10 months. That's what they were saying. Do not ask about any invoices for the next eight to 10 months. And I was saying to myself, eight to 10 months? I thought this thing was the last two weeks. Remember when it was supposed to last two weeks? Just shelter at home, two weeks. So, you know, you had, you really saw some true colors, some amazing things come out of people. I have to say there was, there was a real positivity. There was, there was a silver lining, but there also was a moment there where everyone was kind of reading you the riot act of, I know I'm not going to pay or net 90 or net 120 or net 240 or, and you were hearing things. So you were in continu- you were continuously trying to run wow. your company and collect the money that was out there, but you also were building scenarios on the fly to say what if, what if, what if, and what does that mean? And you know, and that's and I always I think about this a lot. And you asked me about investors, right? What if I had an investor at that point? What would their position have been? What would they have done, right? What would have happened to our funding, right? So in some ways, there was a almost like a too small to fail aspect of COVID. <laughs> You know, I was like, I was like driftwood in the ocean. And I said, yeah, I swear to God, I said, you know, gosh, if we could just stay small and breathe very quietly, we could just get through this damn thing if we have the right scenarios. And I'll tell you, we did something where we became, again, relationships. We came, we became privy to some information about how a lot of companies and partners were thinking about this and where they were seeing the endpoint. And what they were connecting it to with regards to vaccine or level of virus spread or whatever, which was so weird to have to become an expert on those things. And we started building our scenarios off of those endpoints. And we started, you know, assessing and reassessing, you know, and I'll be honest with you, PPP was absolutely a godsend for us. You know, it was absolutely a godsend. And every penny went to payroll for the employees. I I never forget where you told me, is is there the worst code situation on a cruise ship where they actually have to burn the linens? (laughs) <laughs> I don't know anything about that. <laughs> well, we were at we were at a terrible we were at a terrible point where there were ships stranded at sea with people 
people, I mean, needing triage. They were thinking about emergency ambulance boats going to them. People locked in their in their uh, dorms, rooms, whatever, taking pictures, sending them to CNN. I could not imagine how the industry would return. And I remember I was calling you and saying this, and you, you know, you, you're saying have faith. Uh, this industry is so resilient. I bet you they're selling out a season in 2022 as we speak in 2020. They're doing really well. I'll say that they're, if I'm honest with you, it, the return to service for these brands has not been easy. There's been, and it hasn't been for the whole world. If you just look at how many different business challenges there are, compounding business challenges, forget inflation, you know, just think about sourcing staff and sor- sourcing crew, right? Think about international limitations on travel. When countries close borders, how are you supposed to get people from a country that has, a, you know, has an outbreak, right? There are just all these little challenges. And I would say that this industry was, in terms of a pandemic, this was probably the most fragile industry in the world, or I'd say they were going to feel the impact the most, right? Mm-hmm. And they did. They did. Absolutely. I think that there's something about once that, and I think all of us had this pent up desire to travel. I know I did. I know we did in our family. When people started getting vaccinated and thinking about what they wanted to get back to, I remember for my wife and I, it was just going and having a normal dinner at a restaurant inside. That was, I remember our first time we did that. And that was so special. It was so, it was like, oh my God, I could feel this again. This is incredible. This is what it feels like to order. Um, and I think for some people, that's what international travel was and they've returned to it and they've been very serious about it. I, I still don't think they're, they're filling the ships quite like they used to. And I feel, th- I still think it's a memory, you know, and, and it's a recent memory in terms of what happened to the ships going into COVID. But I just think there is a, there is a human urge to travel, to see things, to do things. And I think especially right now, people want to, to get away from home and do something different They're They want to be out there. Ronnie Farzad, Ronnie Farzad, Brotato, Brosephine, my little bro, I got to ask you, cyclicality, you and I talk about investing all the time and buying a portfolio where certain things are zigging while others are zagging. Advertising is very cyclical. If you're building, I don't know, uh, buildings, office buildings, uh, uh, if you're if you're in an industry that's very um, subjective, that if consumers have discretionary money, eating out, luxury products, that's cyclical. It strikes me that your business, hospitality, the cruise line industry, luxury boutique hotels are decidedly cyclical, and we all have this fear and loathing right now on the edge of kind of this this inflationary shock and gas prices as high as they are, and and COVID kind of still dragging along in some sort of Omicron variant. I've lost track that we're about to dive into a recession. Now, you having felt kind of business lockdown and credit lockdown overnight and inflation and uh, you know people quitting and wages going up over the past year, how are you now bracing for this big bad uh, recession come up that everybody's warning us about? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, it's top of mind for everyone. I think everyone is really cognizant of the perfect storm we have here, right? And it was a perfect storm, I think, even before the war broke out in Ukraine. But there's this moment of trying to understand what type of recession it is. And that's what's weird, right? To try to not let your brain think that this is the same as COVID. Because it's true, it's not going to be the same as COVID, at least for my company. So you've got, you've almost got a, I'd say it's as important to not react too quickly or proactively, um, I'd say, do things that you can't reverse from a recession standpoint 
And you just want to try to collect information and be the smartest person you can and understand, do investors still have access to capital or what projects are stalled? You know, a lot of the work we do is not with the operational brands. A lot of the work that we do is with brands that don't exist for another three or four or five years. So that, you know, when you're trying to understand, hey, what's this resort or cruise ship that you're building that doesn't even, there's, there isn't even a ship right now, right? The questions of how a recession impacts that company and sometimes it's it's sometimes it's just an investor. It's not even a full company yet. Sometimes it's a developer with an idea, right? But the idea of how a recession impacts them is really unique and different than, let's say, an operational cruise line with 25 ships, right? Um, there is no guest yet. There is no consideration for a guest yet, right? There is no build. There's there isn't even an agreement maybe with the yard to build that ship or to to build that property yet. So I think that that's one of the things is kind of where it's going to impact your business and which types of customers. And something I'm really thankful we did, we started this about three or four years ago, is we actually built a technology that's on a recurring annual license. And if, you know, for the customers that license that technology, and I know I talk your head off about it, Robin, because I'm really passionate about it. But for the customers that license that, that just doesn't turn off. You know, it, if, if a resort's operating, they're using that technology, right? They're going to keep it on, even if it's a recession. It's, it's harder to turn off, actually. So... That, I'm happy we did that. And that's been part of kind of the recession proofing. Look, we're in a really, as you said, um, with regards to the hospitality industry, it's really cyclical. There are ups and downs. Uh, when it's up, it's really up. And when it's down, it's really down. But, you know, for us, the, the recurring revenue model was, was a means by which to, um, have some stability, you know, on, while you're a piece of driftwood. <laughs> Full disclosure. <Robert. laughs> Full disclosure on Robin Farzad. We're doing this special episode with my little brother, Ronnie Farzad, who's the founder and principal at Spark Cooperative. It's a it's a startup that deals with the hospitality industry in Miami. And I've always had these parenthetical conversations with him about his journey over the last 10 years. And I thought that some of these nuggets were just too precious to not share with my listenership. So please do stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Again, fulldradio.com on Apple Podcasts. We air on several radio stations. Here, our headquarters is Virginia Public Radio, Radio IQ across the great Commonwealth. We are on WERA, Radio Arlington in Northern Virginia and much of D.C. In Asheville, North Carolina, we are on WPVM and out west in Ventura on KPPQ. Holler if you too would like full disclosure on your air. If you are just joining us, we are talking to my little bro, Ronnie Farzad. He's principal at Spark Cooperative. It's a startup in the hospitality industry in Miami. He's been doing it for the better part of eight years. And I couldn't resist this experiment of having him on the show because when we meet, in addition to talking about family and life and everything else, he shares these priceless lessons and nuggets with me about startup life and surviving the great pandemic and and starting this business uh, coming out of the Great Recession, and now maybe looking into another recession. So I figured, why not port this, plug this into full disclosure? Uh, good sir, Ronnie. Yes, sir. Uh, <laughs> um, if you could, you know, one one the last time I was on a cruise ship was when you worked at Royal Caribbean. I think it was seven years ago, and you took me on a a, a ship you helped launch, which was what is it, Oasis of the Seas? Oasis of the that's right, Oasis. You have good memory, Oasis of the Seas. Then by this th- back then, the largest inca- cruise ship in the world. Back then, back then, the largest cruise ship in the world. Do you remember the parameters? I remember there was a central park in it that we were standing on. I, yes. I couldn't, I couldn't get my head around the size of this thing. There was a central park. There was an entertainment district. 
Uh, there was a promenade that went, you know, uh, forward to aft on the ship. The ship carried 6,700 guests, 2,100 crew. I mean, it's a city. It's a city. And it was an incredible. I was on that ship for 50 days. And so we were on that roughly, what was that, around 2011 or 12? No, I think it was 2010, actually. So they would have had to pull the trigger on this. When you talked earlier about lead times in this industry and just the conception, much less they never gave the order to the shipbuilder. But again, this is a multinational. It's publicly traded. They have access to the credit markets. How long would the thinking have gone from kind of conception to uh, launch birthing this thing? 2000 and uh, 2005, I believe, in 2006, there was a name um, for the ship. They always had project names, and there was like a need to know basis where there were whispers in the hallways of you know something being built. And you know, I started at Royal Caribbean in 2008, and by then it was public. But you know, there are many steps that go into the process. Even before a ship is public, there's work that goes into the concept and reviewing it with the different the various yards. Um, you know the places that build these ships. To, here's what I, to here's, get a quote, again, but here's right? the here's the thing: they, they did they have did anyone have any idea in the early aughts of this great financial crisis? You you kind of told me several times it's irrelevant that the useful life of this ship and the fleet, if you don't relaunch and innovate, you might as well die. So the birth the birth you know essentially the birth cycle of a ship being five to six years usually ships are a reflection, the the actual design of a ship, the first in class, which is what you're talking about, is a reflection of the economy in which it was designed or ordered, not a reflection of the economy it launches in. And, you know, going fast forward, you know, in 2000 and 2010, 2011, you know, I think Royal Caribbean ordered um, the first in the next class, which was the quantum of the seas. And that ship was not a larger ship until, you know, with the Oasis class, that was basically the end of Royal Caribbean just trying to build a larger ship. That was the nuclear arms race of cruise building. Once they ordered the Quantum of the Seas, it was, you know, they were ordering in the midst of a recession. So there was a, how can we be more efficient? You know, how much space do we really need? How do we optimize that space for outdoors where possible? You know, that, that this is the thinking changes. And the Oasis ships are very profitable, but they're profitable when you when you fill them up. So I don't know if I answered your question. I'm sorry to take you on that. I'm really passionate about this. No, but I don't, you know, there's cyclicality and then there's hyper cyclicality and you get into kind of this, this continuum of time dilation. If you're planning out, again, the hotel industry deals with this, but the hotel industry, Marriott and Hilton and all them have it down to a science. If they're building an executive hotel or one that's an extended stay thing, they have formulas, they have demographic studies. You're building a city on the seas. The cruise the, the cruise brands have, sorry to interrupt you, they have a lot of science. They have a lot of data. They have a, a really good, and I'd say actually more than the resorts, they have a really good understanding of what consumption habits are, not just in terms of the room or the one restaurant. They understand where people are walking, how much time they're spending in a venue, um, how they're using the destination, right? You know, what's the optimum square footage to to build a bar, right? Where should you have that bar? How many people behind the bar? Why? What's for peak flow? You know, what about downtime? I'm telling you the the level of depth, and that's what that's something I'm passionate about, right? I'm actually not a big fan of cruising. I don't love cruising at all. From the time that our father was working on a carnival ship, you know, <laughs> right. we'd go on and we play ping pong, right? And um, you know, do the lobster buffet, the midnight buffet, but. Uh, I've just never, as as a grown as a grown man and one with a family, I've never loved cruising. It's just not where I, I don't want to be in one space. But from a from a science standpoint and an engineering standpoint, I'm fascinated with the the data 
um, and how it, how it's understood and how they optimize space, how they build things and design, design, design things. So yeah, sorry, I was saying all that um, because we were talking about Marriott and I actually find it's the other way around. The resorts and even Marriott, I'm surprised how little they understand about their customer. I mean, of course they understand pricing and promotions and additional on-property spend and those sorts of things, but they're lacking a whole side of the perspective that has to do with when you are carrying people for a certain period of time and they have all these different outlets, right? They have, you know, if you look at a cruise ship compared to a resort property, it's just a total difference. Um, Not to mention the destination changing continuously with Mm. a cruise ship. Well, in the few minutes we have left with you, I'd love for you to share the lessons. I always ask you this. If everybody thinks out, by the way, in in a moment of full disclosure here, if everybody thinks it's a kind of crazy stunt to have your brother on the show, I legitimately ask my little brother for professional advice and reflections. It's always like we have five-year plans of looking ahead and looking backwards. And I really had to port this to the show somehow because there are these nuggets that you shared with me. For example, you know, in a negotiation that you shared with me, the other person wants to negotiate with what they have in abundance. If it's food that they want to give away if they specialize in marketing versus cutting a check. What are what are some of those golden nuggets you can share with my listeners over the next five or so minutes? Yeah. Um, I'm obviously really biased because I have my own feelings about the things that are important for me. And if you, if you ask my partner, you'd probably get a whole different slew of them. I'm going to sound like an old man, but I think it all comes down to relationships. Everything is about relationships. Um, everything's about the network, about the friendships you build, about finding your own way to network. And, you know, there's some people who think networking is wearing a hello, my name is, you know, name tag and walking around shaking hands and, uh, you know, like a a speed dating lightning networking round. It's not for me. I just find what I love about the different people um, that I spend time with. And I find a way to get to know them on that wavelength. I think that's critical. Um, I'd say that most of our success um, in terms of how we've been able to find and build clients has been owing to relationship building. That's been critical. From the standpoint of um, starting up, I highly recommend finding mentors. It was important uh-huh, for us. Uh-huh. And I, you know, I think a lot of people like to attribute their success to themselves. And I don't, right? I attribute it to kind of learning on the fly and tapping into right. mentors and seeing what they would say to us. And there's still nuggets. There's one specifically, um, you know, Ralph Guardiano. He was, um, he has an ad agency up in Connecticut. And he, you know, before we started Spark, um, I'd meet with him and I'd ask him questions and he just had the best nuggets of advice, you know, and he would tell you, he would tell you what, you know, when a deal is wrong or when the price is too low, just be, be super honest and transparent with someone and pass them on to a, to someone else they could do the work with. And they'll be What about the hard, what about the bitter pills of cutting and cutting more than you might have to cut in a downturn to protect yourself from an even worse downturn? I mean, clearly people didn't have the visibility anywhere you know, two years ago, but you have to do that. There are times that are flush and you can afford to have uh, slack in the system and there are times that are kind of hound to mouth. Yeah, you you exactly, you got it right. I think when you're, and this part of this is, this is what I said about not thinking you're in a COVID cycle right now. So there, there may be a recession coming um, and what type of recession, I don't, I don't know and how many months, I don't know. But it's not going to be everyone turning off all their spending at once overnight, which is what COVID was, right? Which is full-on crisis mode. So the first thing you got to do is just understand, are you in growth mode? Are you in maintenance mode? Are you in decline mode? Are you in panic mode? And then you've got to build your scenarios appropriately for that. And you've got to build a scenario that is a very conservative one, a moderate one, an aggressive one. And you've got to plug into that more and more variables. of What do I know is real for sure? 
you know, and what is, and then go all the way to the other side, which is, you know, what do I not control and what's not real and what money am I not sure I'm going to get? And that's when, you know, that's when you're really trying to understand how far your, your runway of cash will take you. Um, but I got that advice from another mentor. That's, these aren't original thoughts. I had a, I had a mentor tell us, actually a great guy. I can't say his name because he's also, he's also located a company that we do business with. But I had him say to me many years ago, Hey, if you think a recession is coming, cut all of your receivables in half and figure out a plan with that. Yeah, literally just do that. Just start there. And I said, wow, that's, that seems actually easier than I thought it would be. So, you know, in terms of nuggets, I'll tell you that one that's been really important for us, and I mentioned it before, was how do you get out of the, the cyclicality and what's your means to doing that? So when you're in a consulting business, which we do a lot of consulting projects, right? Brands come to us and say, can you design the experience for this property that's five years out that doesn't even exist? And like, show us what that looks like so, right, we, can, right. so we can plan around that, right? And that's great. When you get a deal, that is awesome. And that's a great feeling. You get the deal, you get the client, you get the logo, you do the work. It's really fun. But that deal ends. Inevitably, every deal ends, right? So um, early on, we did a lot of thinking about how do we make it A, how do we make it so that we have just some steadiness between the ups and downs of what is just part of the consulting life, right? Or even agency life, if you want to call it that. Um, and that was the technology side of things. That's the licensing side of things. And then the other part of it is thinking about why people pay you. Right for the first several years that we had Spark, people paid for our time. They paid for my time and my partner's time, and that is what they think they want. Right. So if you sit there all all day and just quote people in terms of what your time is worth, you're going to end up building a consulting practice um, or an agency that is entirely centered around more of your time. Okay. And people are going to want to value your time, and you're going to tell them, "Hey, it's 400 an hour," and they're going to say, "No, it's 200 an hour," or "Hey, we have a rate sheet." And this is the rate sheet we work with, right? And early on, we said, we don't want to be, we don't want it to be about our time. And we don't want it to be about access to us. That's just not a way to build a business because we're a finite resource, right? So we actually did a lot of work to build deliverables and services away from us, outside of us, where, you know, we certainly were participating in building, you know, hey, what goes into the keynote or what's the process for that project or how do you visualize that or how does that meeting run? Uh, ultimately, you don't want to be the one responsible, or you're just limiting yourself, and you're, everyone's going to come back to you for your time, right? So, well, I'm I, coming I, back yeah. to you for your time, Rotato. <laughs> I mean, I'm how's sorry. that for transition? Look, I have to tell people that <laughs> this stuff is valuable to me, and look, I, 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 I want this to be an ongoing thing. It's amazing. My 40 year old brother, the baby brother that I held when he was born in 1982, has traveled. Uh, such an interesting journey through corporate America and through entrepreneurship that he's become kind of a a mentor of sorts to his uh, business journalist big brother. And as I said before, I wanted to port this to full disclosure, kind of in the interest of of sharing notes and when I find interesting guests. But uh, I hope everybody appreciates it. And I certainly hope you come back on, Ronnie. Thank you. I'll I'll look forward to the co-hosting opportunity as well. (laughs) Full disclosure, do stay with us. This show podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. A shout out to our home station, WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station across the great Commonwealth. Holler if you too would like us on your air. If you are just joining, I was trying something new, talking to my younger brother, Ronnie, on his startup's journey. I take so many notes when he dishes that I just had to bring one of our chats to the podcast. 
I thought I'd close out this unconventional episode with another Miami story, that of Cold Warrior, informant, demolition expert, spy, mercenary, cocaine provateur, Cuban exile Ricardo Monkey Morales. I don't know how to describe him. Four decades after the notorious exile was killed in Miami, his son, Rick Jr., is piecing together dad's tormented story. Here's an excerpt from our 2021 conversation. Joining me from Michigan, where he now lives, is Ricardo Morales Jr., the namesake. If you Google his father, Ricardo Monkey Morales, uh, has been called the most fascinating man in the history of Miami, the fascinating town, a, a lost spy, a spy for all seasons, informant, CIA operative, opportunistic drug dealer, uh, explosives expert. Uh, how are you, sir? Doing good. Nice to be on, Robin. Rick, I, when somebody asks you, okay, you're Monkey Morales' son. There's so many ways you can describe Monkey Morales. What would you? What was what your elevator pitch to describe your father? Well, I guess uh, my pitch on describing my father would be misunderstood patriot, lost soul at the end. There's a fascinating anecdote that I know, uh, especially you and I got in touch after you know, as my book was being published in 2017. I think we got in touch over Twitter, like, "Hey, why are you posting a photo of my father?" I was like, wow, I found him now. Uh, it would have been useful to find you for the book, but we've struck up quite a conversation since and sharing notes about you know, my 20-year fascination, 20-plus year fascination with your father's journey. I'm citing a famous feature story. It was uh, the cover story of Harper's Magazine uh, back in January 1982, Miami Does Business, Drugs and Terrorism in America's Casablanca. Uh, the main source for John Rothschild, who was the author, the late uh, Miami Beach-based author. Your father helped him out with the story, and he shares this anecdote, which is just so irresistible. Let me read it. Uh, Morales, Ricardo Morales, has been impressing Miami with high-voltage performances, and this is an anecdote that he shares. A man I know once made a surprise visit to Morales' apartment. He told Morales' girlfriend who answered the door that he wanted to have a friendly chat with Ricardo. He was invited to sit in the living room while Morales finished taking a shower. When Morales entered the room, he marched directly to the visitor's briefcase and opened it without asking permission. The visitor was too startled to object. Morales dredged up the tape recorder, which was already running. He removed the tape cassette and put it in his shirt pocket. He shook out the batteries and placed them at the opposite ends of the mantelpiece, like trophies. Then he returned the neutralized recorder to the briefcase. So far, Morales had not said a word. Then Morales pulled out his revolver and laid it on the coffee table. He had disarmed his visitor, and now he's offering up his own concealed weapon for the visitor's inspection. My friend lacked the wit to empty the gun and place the bullets on the mantelpiece next to the batteries. Morales got out a couple of glasses from a cabinet and poured some Chivas Regal. His mood had shifted from menacing to jovial. Now, he said, we can talk. That's the Morales style. Rick Jr., I'm sure you've been regaled with stories like this for what four or five decades. Yeah, I've been. I've heard. I've heard that story a couple of times. I've read it, um, but it gives you a pretty good synopsis of who my father was, in that he uh, would make sure you knew he was in charge, make sure you had a, some fear in you, what was going on around him. He knew, and then let you know that now that we're square. You're a good guy. I'm a good guy. Let's do things. Because he just wanted you to know that he was he could do things, but he didn't want you to be for the rest of your life. It's not like it's going to haunt you. What was your first memory of your father here in the United States? My first memory of my father in the United States is uh, 
there's there's a lot of little ones. Um, him being in the house and us being in bed watching TV. There's fishing trips down to Key Biscayne where we would go fishing and he would talk to us on the way down and, you know, try to try to explain himself to us a little bit. When we were younger, those conversations didn't make any sense. But uh, those are the early memories that I still have. And at what age do you faintly recall, I guess, your father disappearing for weeks and months on on end? As we discuss, in the 1960s, his first decade in the United States, he was a notorious freelancer. He would take contract hit jobs and uh, bomb people's boats and scuba dive through the marina just to scare them. Um, You know, there were the bookie wars going on in Miami Beach and the Jewish and Italian mobs were blowing things up. And the Cubans who were here, who had been waiting for a rematch to take out Fidel Castro, didn't quite get it. So they went out and kind of offered their services freelance as your father did. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I think the memories are few and far between is that he was really never around. I didn't know it when I was a child. I figured everything was the same way everywhere that fathers went away and did things. But yeah, I remember the first time, I couldn't tell you, I must have been young, 10, I can't remember, we can probably figure out the age, was when he was coming out of a courtroom, there's video of that, from a trial, the TikToks trial, and I saw him on TV, and that's when I knew things were bigger than just a a normal father. Hmm. You know, I I just can't believe it if you go back and there are things that are being declassified piece by piece by piece by the CIA. I mean, uh, links to the JFK assassination, all the shady things that happened in Miami in the 1960s. Tell us about your journey to understand your father. I mean, there are so many crumbs that he left since his death at the end of 1982. Informant records, letters that he wrote people. It seemed like he knew he was not going to be long for this world, and it would take family and friends and journalists and everybody to kind of fully unwrap the story. It would take decades and a lot of cooperation from a government that has not always been cooperative. Yeah, very true. Um, And we've been working on getting those uh, CIA files declassified, but that is a struggle in itself. Uh, I remember my dad, I did some research on him once I started getting into the 15, 16 year old range. And, uh, and I started learning about stuff and then the airliner incident where the airplane blows up. And that's when I started figuring it out. But he would take us shooting out into the Everglades and he would take us uh, on little trips here and there. And he would tell us about stuff and he would let us in on some of the stuff, you know, saying it in a way where you could really put a finger on what he was saying, accusing. But there is just so much information. But even now, after his death, that they won't declassify most of the information. So, I am uh, taking a letter from 1968 that was written by the rebel army in exile. This is a group of uh, anti-Castro activists in Miami, of which there were many that your father was a part of. Your father was arrested for this conspiracy to shell a Polish tanker in the port of Miami. Of course, Correct. Poland was a communist country, but th- there was a more complicated thing that your father used. We'll, we'll discuss it to kind of make himself indispensable as an informant to the police when they nabbed him. But I want to read the letter from uh, the director of the Rebel Army in Exile, distinguished army countrymen. The Rebel Army in Exile wants to make known through this newspaper its energetic protest for the detention arrest of the tireless fighter for the cause of democracy, Ricardo Morales Navarrete, who has been accused of placing bombs in establishments catering to the delivery of clothing and medicine to Cuba. 
We want to make it clear we do not support terrorist acts that put innocent lives in danger. That is why the young Navarrete is innocent of the accusations, and we feel his arrest and his bond set at $25,000 is unjust. The bond cannot be obtained by his family since the economic situation of Morales and his family is like that of the majority of the Cuban exiles in this country, that they have to work in order to support their families. That is why we ask the authorities in this case, as each day goes by, is unfair to Ricardo Morales Navarrete. His children and his wife suffer more hardship because they depend on him for substance, which is sick. It should be subsistence. Also, for the general public that is unfamiliar with the young Morales, we show a picture of the young Morales when he was fighting communism in the Congo. What he has done for Cuban freedom, there is no need to speak. And those that have not turned their backs on the Cuban tragedy know him. Do you remember this incident when your father was arrested in 1968? How old were you? Yeah. What's, what year is it again? 1968. 68. I'm five years old. I do not. I remember he was not around. So, But I remember because my whole family was involved also because my uncle, Hector Cornelot, was also with my father, the ones that were placing bombs. There was factions that were placing bombs and there were competing factions that were placing bombs. And some of them were pro-Castro and some of them were anti-Castro. So my dad was trying to get involved in that for the FBI to try to figure out who's doing what for what reason. So who's doing it pro-Castro-wise, who's doing it anti-Castro-wise. So he was trying to provide all the information at those times to the officers. That's why he would plant bombs that didn't work on some targets because he knew they weren't pro-Castro, they were anti-Castro. So some of the devices would go off. That was part of the games that he played. Now, did you ever ask your mother or your father point blank, like, what do you do? What does daddy do? Why is daddy gone? Why did you just understand that daddy was gone all the time? Yeah, no, that, that, uh, by the time we would hang out with him, we knew what daddy did. I never had to ask because not only it was on the news quite a bit back then, you would see stories on the news and you would read the newspapers and everybody told you, yeah, your dad's the one that's out blowing things up or your dad's a this or your dad's that. And they didn't know. So we had to take it as children. You believe a lot of the things they talk about your dad. And then so I grew up believing he was uh, some kind of drug dealer for a lot of years. And then the political stuff started coming out. And that's when I got wise. How could you just grow up believing that your dad's a drug dealer? Like your mom wouldn't disabuse you of this, your older brother. Uh, what are other people saying? I mean, people in Havana, Little Havana, they talk. People in Coral Gables in South Miami. Your father is quite an infamous figure. Those people don't know the underlying reasons of why things happen. Like, for example, how does a CIA asset become the second in charge of Venezuela's DCEP department? They're basically their CIA. Never having lived in Venezuela, not having been born in Venezuela, why is he the second in command of Venezuela's secret police? Who posted him there? That's a CIA posting. So he was there working for the CIA. That was a flashback to my 2021 conversation with the son of Miami quadruple agent Ricardo Monkey Morales, who was killed back in 1982. You can listen to the entire episode wherever you get your pods. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly and multimedia producer Evan Hunter. We podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate, and recommend us. You can follow along on Twitter, Insta, Facebook, LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio, and catch me weekly on MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week. 